Hey, this is your host Shane. Welcome to Radical Rocks. Today we've got a super exciting episode. We're going to talk about stabilizing and hardening stones with vacuum technique. We'll talk about rat's hair plissamine, jasper, and so much more. On the first part of the journey, I was looking at radical rocks. There were fossils, minerals, and rocks and things. There were sand, hills, and rings. The first thing I found was a geocrystals, quartz with no clouds. Agate was hot and the ground was hard, but the gems were there to be found. See, I've been through the desert, found a rock of no name. Felt good to have in my hand in the desert. That's right, folks. Radical rocks are everywhere. And today we're going to be talking about rocks on uh, the moon, dinos with skin, uh, the largest geode ever in a crystal cave in Ohio, um, wild horse minimal, mineral property, the Mohs scale. And then, uh, like we said, rat's hair, flissamine, stabilizing and hardness, all kinds of really neat stuff, guys. Should be a pretty good episode. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for looking up Radical Rocks to uh, join in on our social media. You can find us on MeWe. Uh, Just look up Radical Rocks and we will show up. Uh, Sometimes it's Radical Rocks USA, but uh, Radical Rocks should get it. We also have a presence on Locals, Gitter, Parlor, Truth Social, Facebook, and we have uh, videos on YouTube and also Rumble. Um, there's more on YouTube right now. In fact, we just dropped a video on stabilizing and hardness. So let's talk about that a little bit. Let's say you have a porous gemstone and you would like to make it harder. Um, There's different techniques that you can do for that. If it is a porous, like a turquoise or maybe a chrysocolla, I've tried it on many different rocks, uh, calcites and carbonites and things like that, that you might want to make them harder so that they don't fall apart when you're cabbing or polishing. So you'll want to check out that video on YouTube. Just look up Radical Rocks, you'll see us. But one of the first things you need to do when you stabilize your stone is I like to have it, if they're not not cut into slabs, if they're just little pebbles and such, um, you should probably cut them up into slabs. If it's so crumbly, it can't even cut up to a slab, um, then I guess you're going to have to try to treat it. But uh, the thinner it is, the better the penetration of the resin. You're going to use a resin... There's uh, many different products on the market. I'm not going to talk about those right now, but the process for the most prominent ones is you clean the rock, you remove all oil. In fact, you want to wear rubber gloves so that you don't even get the oil of your hands on it. Clean it with soapy water or degreaser. Rinse, 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 rinse. Dry it off very, very well. Then you will want to clean it in acetone. You don't want to splash this in your eyes. Uh, Probably keep the gloves on to protect your skin. And scrub it in acetone with a clean brush. And I would let it soak in the acetone for a couple hours. And then let it dry thoroughly where it is not going to get dirty or dusty. 
And again, keep using your gloves. Once it's thoroughly dry, now you're ready for the stabilizing process. Now, if you have a vacuum chamber, I've seen it done just at room temperature, but in the video, I use a heat pad and some lights to get the temperature up to about 150. Um, for the, I put the, the vacuum chamber on the heat pad and put the lights on it. I have a, a thermostat monitoring the temperature, uh, taped to the side, not in the direct uh, beam of the light, so that I can kind of get a good, a good uh, media temperature of it. If you don't have a vacuum pump, you can use light bulbs. Just be sure you're not going to burn down the house. Um, I have used an oven. I, I would suggest if you can do it outside, um, make sure it's well ventilated. I have done it inside. I'm not saying you should. Again, uh, you know, this is just what I've done. I'm not, I'm not advising you how to do it. You're just uh, taking what I do and then do your own research on top of that and make your own decisions. You do you and I'll do me, as they say. So I heat it up to 150 degrees, and then um, I had it in the vacuum pump where you, in the vacuum chamber where you need a vacuum pump with a vacuum hose. I go over the proper starting technique for a vacuum pump. I won't do that here, but there are techniques for starting them that will give your vacuum pump more life. But the amazing thing, once you start the vacuum pump, and I have video of this, the rocks start to bubble. They look like they're boiling. It could be moisture boiling out of there, but a lot of air is boiling out of there. And um, making the temperature of the resin hotter makes it uh, pour easier, right? So if you have like, uh, you know, if you have syrup and it's really, really thick and it pours really, really slow, if you heat it up, you know, it will pour quicker. Same thing with honey, same thing with oil, same thing with resin. You heat it up, it gets thinner. That makes it, and the heat opens up the rock. The rock is expanding, so the porous cavities in the rock will expand more to be able to take in the resin deeper. The vacuum pulls it in deep into the pores. Um, again, be careful what kind of rocks you try to harden. You know, emeralds, opals, things that have water in them, crystals like that, are not good candidates for putting heat um, and I don't know what a vacuum would do to them. That could destroy them. So be aware that you need to use uh, porous rocks. T turquoise is common, uh, chrysocolla. I've done it on rhodochrosite, um, sugalite or charlite. I'm not sure. One of those two purple gemstones out of uh, Russia. I've done it on those and other stones. So that gets it out. I left it on the vacuum pump for uh, just over two hours until the bubbles started to dissipate. And then uh, you let the, the gemstones um, or slabs and stuff, you let them cool slowly, even if it takes overnight and to room temperature. And you leave them in the material. Then the next day, you put your gloves on and you clean them off. Uh, you can use a brush. I don't know that a cloth would work good, but I've heard people say use a cloth. Now, all the old resin, at least in the, um, the epoxy kit that I use in the video, you can check that out and see what kind of epoxy I use. I talk about it. Um, it's reusable as long as you don't put hardener in it. So you do not put hardener in it. You just put the resin only. And you try to clean that off. 
So once you clean that off, you will want to, uh, you know, all the drippy part of it, you will want to mix some, some of the hardener in with some resin. So I did about a half ounce, which a half ounce of resin takes 50 drops of hardener. Um, I would do about an eight to one uh, ratio uh, hardener. Eight resins to one hardener in measurement. And uh, I coat both sides of the of my slabs and my little nuggets and things like that that I was hardening. Uh, and very good with a brush and rub it in. I would rub it in with the brush around the edges, both sides. And I put, put it on aluminum foil. Um, if it dries thoroughly and hardens properly, it will peel off the aluminum pretty decent. I did try to peel some off at night, uh, just a few hours afterwards. It was still kind of sticky, and it did pull the aluminum foil off onto the rock. If you had aluminum foil on the rock, I don't think that's really good to get that into a grinding wheel. I think that would be probably very bad and could have some catastrophic uh, results because aluminum can get in the pores of uh, things and then expand as it gets hot and then cause uh, damage to the, to the rock. So if you have aluminum foil left on your slabs after hardening, then uh, you know, scrape that off, get that all off or wire brush it or whatever, and, uh, or wait for it to fully dry. If you've done a good mix, it should peel off or use a pie pan. I've, I've done my, most of mine with a pie pan. This is the first time I tried aluminum foil. And um, anyway, my slabs were so good and so heavy, the material got so deep into them. It's the best I've ever done on hardening um, slabs and little small uh, nugget size pieces of uh, turquoise and chrysocolla and, and different gemstones. So check out that video. All right. So that is it for stabilizing and hardening gemstones. Um, another little tip is the kit is a fracture repair kit but it can be used for stabilizing and it can be done without the vacuum, but I'm telling you the vacuum really made a, a substantial greater improvement in my opinion. So let's see what we have here. Cryptozoic mineral may help create the next, generator, uh, next generation of fuel cells, super capacitors, capacitors air and aircraft engines at mining.com and uh, their magazine says dot.com but the website is mining and then a dot and com you can look this up uh, it was written by a staff writer and this composite that they're making this cryptozoic mineral is going to help with the green industry they say quite quite a big deal um it has been studied at Russia's National University of Science and Technology. It is a product for composite materials based on shungite and carbon fibers in a graphite matrix. Uh, shungalite is a unique rock consisting of almost 100% carbon. The paper was published in the journal Polymers, and the scientists explained that the combination of low density, high strength, chemical stability at elevated temperatures, these composite materials can be used to produce fuel cells, supercapacitors, 
and next generation aircraft engine components. So this is a whole new class of composites that's being developed, um, things that are actually able to be done. And uh, they feel that this could uh, help uh, build out a lot of things for the new green industry, key parts of fuel cells, components of chemically resistance uh, or components for chem that are chemically resistance for equipment, complex pumping equipment for oil production at record depths and the harshest conditions are other promising areas of use for the new material which could create a new generation of aircraft engine components. Maybe these would be even faster uh, aircrafts. Who knows, right? All right. I want to tell you about a wonderful place. Uh, Ohio State is an excellent place to go if you like rocks. This winery was purchased, and uh, the grandfather had found a beautiful geode in an Ohio crystal cave. Um, Maria Buink tells us about it at uh, thetravel.com. And uh, I went and looked at a link that shows the actual giant, world's giant geode, or biggest geode, they say, at spectrumnews.one. And um, the article is found at spectrumnews1.com. And they have a video there that you can watch where you go inside the cave and see these beautiful crystals, which they call the world's largest geode. This article is credited to Sophia Constantine in uh, I Put in Bay, Put in Bay, Ohio, the Heinzman's Winery in Put in Bay is the oldest family owned winery in Ohio. However, what lies about 40 feet below the surface draws visitors from around the state. Okay? It was discovered in 1897. Three years later, in 1900, it was open to the public for tools. The largest uh, celestite, uh, I know what this is, uh, celos, cel, celestite, finally got it, celestite. I know what this is. It's a beautiful, sometimes it's white, sometimes it has a blue hue. I have some actually that um, I have listed Maybe I'll put it back on my eBay store, which would be Radical Rocks USA. I've got a lot of great rocks and gemstones for sale there right now, just for a shameless plug. Um, but uh, celestite is a beautiful uh, mineral that people love to collect. And this one measures three feet in width and crystals in the cave weigh between 200 and 300 pounds. Um, they feel that overall there is literally thousand two. Uh, the crystals are two to three hundred pounds, and somewhere in here it said that there was thousands and thousands of pounds of crystals, but maybe it was in the other article. Um, there's pictures of these crystals. The crystals are exactly the same, even though one might be bigger than the other. Each crystal has 14 flat surfaces called faces, and all the angles are the same on each crystal, and this is because when the crystals form, the molecules arrange themselves exactly the same way. The crystal size was is what makes them unique. Um, the, measure, the cave measures three feet in width, and they are estimated, here it is, 12,000 to 15,000 years old. It's not pounds, it's years. And uh, when you go there, you can uh, get a free 
sample of wine or grape juice if you are uh, not of age. So that is something fun in Ohio. If you're ever there, check that out. Now I've got a question for you. What is a valuable deposit of minerals in a hard rock formation? What do you call that? Well, the answer is ore. O-R-E. Ore is what you call a valuable deposit of minerals in a rock formation. Um, this comes from gameandguides.com. In uh, answers to crosswords is there for your enjoyment. They have crosswords with... Uh, uh, questions on rocks and minerals sometimes. Now, in the Dominica today, uh, the Dominica Republic is an interesting place because this is the sole source of Larimar gemstone, beautiful aqua blue gemstone. We've talked about it recently. Um, I'm not seeing who gets the uh, credit for this, but dominicatoday.com says the government will formalize the rescue of Larimar. So in short, what happened was they stopped all production of this mining. Their director of mining, uh, Rolando Munoz, uh, or yeah, I guess that's his name. He said it would be reactivated. Mining would be reactivated. Uh, but they're going to talk about how these practices are going to be done. Um, I think, and this is just speculation, just an opinion, I think they will try to limit it because that will keep the price up and make their mine more valuable. And they can probably look at the mine and try to um, figure out how, you know, do some drill samples, figure out how many years can this last, you know, at what rate. And they should they should do that. They should limit it, I think, because this will keep the value up and uh, keep some supply coming out for years to come and help uh, that country to benefit from their mineral resource. Now, there's an exciting discovery of a dinosaur that actually had remains of skin. Um, the OICanada.com website tells us about this. Tammy Sewell, there's a picture of this dinosaur here. If you've ever seen a duck-billed um, dinosaur, they stand up on two legs, kind of like a T-Rex, but they have kind of a duck bill. Well, this looks similar to that. Um, the bill is not quite as uh, outstanding. Uh, it's a very stout dinosaur with short legs, kind of like the T-Rex. And this was found in the Dinosaur Provincial Park in Canada. There's actually all kinds of dinosaurs that are found there. But one with the skin, you know, finding a whole skeleton, that's special. Um, but finding fragments of fossilized skin, this is very promising and gives them a lot of uh, things that they can research. So this is pretty exciting. This creature um, was found. There's a picture of them in another article where the two students who found it standing next to the discovery where it's just poking out uh, here and there on this uh, rock, uh, or I guess it would be probably a conglomerate or alluvial type of a thing. Looks like it's just been covered with sand, and then the sand has kind of uh, fossilized. So it says it is uncommon to find remains, remains and this dinosaur is called a Hadrosaurus. Uh, it's very uncommon to find remains of a Hadrosaurus in this park. Discovering an entire specimen is much rarer could bring important information um, of this herbivore dinosaur and its anatomy. Scientists also hope to find other areas covered with fossilized skin, which would help paint a much more detailed picture of this species. 
Fragments of fossilized skin are indeed very rare, the soft part being more difficult to preserve than the bones. In view of the extent of the covered areas and the exposed parts of the fossils, scientists suggest the specimen got buried very quickly, certainly less than two days after its death, probably by a flood, right? This would have allowed the exceptional preservation of the skin. Um, the small size of the bones in the tail and the foot suggests it could be a young individual. Again, quite rare, could allow us to better understand how these dinosaurs um, developed with age. Pretty cool. This was basically the creaceous cow is what they call it because it's uh, you know, a grazing animal, but uh, pretty big. I mean, I think these things got you know, probably 20 feet tall and about the same in length, and they probably weighed, you know, more than an elephant. So they don't give those type of details here, but there's pictures and more information if you want to know. Guess what? We have been on Mars for one year. One year, Perseverance um, has been uh, just driving all over the place. They have a map here of where it's been. It's uh, got, they plan, uh, they've collected seven samples so far of uh, rock and dirt. They plan on bringing 30 samples back to Earth in uh, 2033. They will analyze these with much more detailed instruments than what are available on Mars now. The Jezero Crater, which is just north of the Martian equator, that was their target uh, because it looked like a river delta, it looked like a lake bed, and they were hoping that to find evidence of water flowing. So they feel that, you know, of course, this is going to help them find life if there was life there. And they feel that they found the possibility that uh, water was there. It depends on whose article you read, but it says Jezero's craters are igneous cumulative rocks. They were formed by cooling molten magnum are the best rocks for precise um, geochronology once the samples have returned to Earth. And they also show evidence of having been altered by water. And we've talked about the things that they thought were clay or wearing away, things like that. Um, they've also found uh, a lot of sand and olivine, which is a, a glass, a basically a green glass. So a lot of cool things have happened there. Um, a lot of minerals, okay? Um, the article, see if I can go back, it kind of timed me out. It's from Forbes, and uh, it just kind of timed me out, so I can't really share the website. Wow, yeah, they timed me out. Well, sorry, Forbes. Okay, I'm going to close that one. Rat hair plismine, um, plismaline or malane. Uh, I always heard it called plismine, but it's I'm sure that's not the right pronunciation. But uh, it's P S I L O M E L A N E. This is a black uh, magna uh, magna uh, magnanese mineral, which often looks bitrudal. When you find it out in the desert of California, um, there's some areas where you, I found some nice pieces in uh, the Wiley Wells area um, in an old manganese mine or magnesium mine. And um, it's pretty cool because they used to use this when they would make cameos as a backdrop. You know, they put the, the white stone or mother of pearl or something like that on top of the black and then and then when they would carve it gives a shadowy uh appearance to the carvings of the cameo if you don't know what a cameo is 
check them out. They're really cool. It gives them a kind of a lifelike look. Um, kind of, it's kind of an eerie lifelike look, but it's pretty cool. So, um, our friends at uh, Christie's Minerals send me out emails, and they had some for sale. And I was like, "Well, what is this? I need to do more research." And I clicked on their link, and it didn't work. So I did some research for you today. Mindat dot org. Um, there is in their discussions area. William G. Lyon tells us about the rat hair plismaline or plismaline, however it's pronounced. And he said that uh, so-called rat's hair specimens of this description consist of a layer of black, hairy uh, plismaline crystals on a matrix. It's soft and flexible and does indeed look just like rat hair. Um, it is... Uh, they define the mineral and want to know if this is uh, truly the right term for this because, as I said earlier, it's usually a bitroidal mass called uh, plismaline. See, I always call it plismaline, but um, plismaline is known to be a mixture of several manganese oxides, um, which one, which is Romanescheite, or Chiite, I'm not sure how that's pronounced, C-H-I-T-E at the end, is a major uh, part of it. Other minerals that are in plissamine that is bitrudal uh, is uh, cryptomelane, uh, which we just talked about, only in a small, smaller part, and mangerorite, um, and tudorokite. So these minerals... Um, also can have the barium, uh, which would be a little bit of yellowish green that can be tested with a flame. The yellowish green shows up if it's in there, apparently, when they test it. And hornandite uh, can also be in there. But he said that, uh, let's see, a little bit more data on this here, if I can scroll down the page, yes. He mentions uh, he has a specimen of this rat's hair with the following data. Um, more technical talk there, kind of what we already talked about. Um, he said it has been found at the Nancy Mine, actually in the town of Sucoro, uh, Sucoro County. That's spelled S-O-C-O-R-R-O. Um, close to the town of Magdal. Enia, a few miles to the west. The Nancy Mine is also referred to as Nancy Towers, and specimens might be found there. Um, they have a link to the field trip uh, area, which is I'm sure it's been passed up now, but mindat.org, and uh, look up rat hair plissamine, and you should be able to find this. Okay. Um, let's see, what else do we have here? The Nancy Magnanese Mine, native rock in this area, according to the scripture, is Vuggy Rhyolite, which contains the coatings of hairy plissomaline. Details of the site and how to reach the site by four-wheel drive. The USGS has done a study on the mineral of this area and found all X-ray diffraction lines to be indexable as Romanichite. And there's a link to that. Um, so definitely there's a location there. 
and I do not see anything else. Okay, I did do one more research on this, and this also is mindat.com, rat's hair, apostrophe S, and you will see a picture of it, and it looks like a rat with his head tucked down or something because you don't see a head. It is literally black fuzzy. Uh, again, this is found in New Mexico, Socorro County, New Mexico, S-O-C-O-R-R-O. Uh, I don't know if that area is open, so you will have to check on, on that if you want to go collect this, but pretty cool. They do have a map uh, that uh, could possibly point you in the direction of more uh, rat's hair, but it, it looks like it's just mostly showing rats when, you, when I click on it, so maybe maybe not too much further to go on that. So rat's hair, plissomine is very interesting and something you might want to check out. Now, what if you want to invest in crystals and minerals as an investment? Now, of course, this show is not investment advice at all. Um, it's just telling you what I'm doing, what, what I like to do. Do I invest in gemstones uh, as an investment? Not really in the sense of probably what most people would think. I would say kind of like I get the minerals and gemstones that I really like with an eye to investment at times, okay? So, for example, I was able to uh, have a friend who had trips out in South America and was able to get me a nice third of a carat Alexandrite stone. Very beautiful multiple color changes. It looks red. It looks green. Sometimes it even looks brown, depending on the type of light. Beautiful stone, cut beautifully, and I had it um, mounted in white gold. My wife loves white gold. I, I don't like white gold, but she does. Happy wife, happy life. So I had it mounted for her, and I kind of look at it as an investment. You know, um, They're very rare, rarer than diamonds, and um, finding good ones, they're just not cheap anymore. They're getting more and more expensive. Also, certain minerals, um, I have a lot of Ikata Peak turquoise. In fact, uh, I will probably be selling some on my Etsy site. But uh, I have some bigger, spectacular pieces. I have some wonderful Kingman, Arizona turquoise from their shoebox special select spiderweb, um, robin's eye, bug eye, some people call it, um, types with the brown matrix and and spider web matrices and things like that. Little tiny pieces of that. And I feel that those are, you know, pretty collectible. I've been able to come across a couple other turquoises. I haven't had them verified, but I'm pretty confident that they're from some pretty rare Southwest mines. So, yeah, I, I kind of have some, you know, in the back of my mind. But as far as really seriously just buying it to invest and socking it away as an investment... You know, I guess I've done that with rocks because I've just collected so much. I've accumulated um, some sales. People had sold their, their whole rock collection or or um, somebody in the family had passed away and inherited a rock collection. And I've bought those with an eye to, you know, picking out some good stuff. And maybe I've given a lot away to uh, rock groups over the years and I've kind of picked it down to what 
what is my select stuff. So, yeah, I guess it could be an investment. So this is what this article says. Heritage1971.com is the website. And uh, Casey Chan says, Crystals and mineral specimens as an investment. You can go here and find out about it. They've got some beautiful pictures here of some mineral uh, specimens. Now, I am not an expert on mineral specimens. I know a lot about, you know, the Southwest minerals and certain gemstones, semi-precious. But uh, as far as mineral specimens, I have kind of shied away from them because I know once I start, I'm going to go crazy. And it would be a shame to have um, a bunch of mineral collections and, and never really be able to have the time to enjoy them. So I've really, really shied away from it. But I do have some, and I have collected a few that uh, I love wavalite. I have a pretty good specimen or two of wavalite. It's a beautiful specimen that looks like a green flower. Sometimes you can even find it with yellow center. I have one, and uh, it's really beautiful stuff, and it just it calls to me. So, um, But they say, look, if you want to invest this like stocks and real estate and antiques and paintings and jewelry and wine and watches, this is a pretty good idea because... Diamond prices dropped, but rare mineral specimens have gone up. Um, it says an auction, uh, the Beijing Poly Auction, called 504,285 in total sales from 39 mineral specimens sold in 2017, and Christie took. More than 1.1 million from their mineral auction in 2020. There's no doubt the crystals and mineral market is up. So here's a few things that they say you should look for. <clears throat> One thing, mineral is art. Some of these specimens are so beautiful. And if you go look at my videos on YouTube, I've got a, I went to a store that had a spectacular display of minerals for sale. They were so beautiful and like only the smallest ones that would fit in my hand and only a few of them were even anywhere in a price range I could have imagined buying something. And uh, man, I was just drooling. But they have a beautiful picture of some fluorite cubes or, or no, excuse me, quartz and pyrite from the Shangabu mine in Liang County, Hengyang Hunang, China, and it's sitting on a big old block of pyrite with these quartz crystals just shooting all over the place, and they've got little baby crystals all over those, and it's just really amazing. Right below that is a picture of a spectacular azurite with chrysocolla. It looks like it's 99% chrysocolla with these blue swirls and very heavy with the azurite, very, very blue. The malachite is more of a minor. Uh, there's a few green globs here and there that's quite beautiful um, from a mine in uh, China as well. A bunch of names I'm not even going to try to slaughter. They're so bad. Quartz on uh, hematite, beautiful. These are bladed um, hematite. They look like little plates stacked up on each other like a stack of Pringles chips, only they're black. And then the... Quartz is a dark, smoky quartz terminated crystal. It's just all over this thing. Beautiful. 
another spectacular mineral from China. Beautiful blue oregonite, uh, a sky blue, cool blue, um, with in the front these uh, sprays of terminated crystals. They are kind of uh, got druzy coatings on them. It says sand inclusions. This also is from uh, Yunnan, China. Very beautiful. Then uh, another white oregonite one from China. Uh, another one from with dolomite and um, hematite. Quartz crystals are looking uh, very much like they're citrine on top with this white crystals of snow, dolomite all over. Beautiful malachite and chrysocolla. Um, these are big bulbous uh, formations in blue. And then the green, it would be more of a malachite. They are little bulbs all stuck on top of each other with little crystals sprinkled all over them perfectly from the star of the Congo mine um, in the Congo. Beautiful. Uh, harder and harder to get. Other beautiful ones. So what do you select? Um, crystals and minerals, <coughs> if they're highly crystallized, you want near gem quality. You want as rare as you can. Um, some stones used to be fairly cheap. In fact, I've got a friend on Facebook. His name's Shane. He's from Australia. He has a spectacular fluorite collection. Um, and he's told me, you know, these, this is what to buy. And he's been buying them, but guess what? Their prices are going up through the roof. Some of these stones that he bought, uh, according to this article, just if he bought them 10 years ago, which he's been collecting a long time, they could be worth 20 to 200 times more. Fluorite, azurite, calcite, quartzite, pyrite, malachite, and the amethyst says was strong before COVID, but is appreciating even more. Fluorites from the Yoagrangyx mine and garnets from the Wush, Wushan mine and sheolite from the Mount Exbording and azurite from uh, Lufengshan mine in China are all really good investments. Um, these could even be used for making uh, jewelry, but they are just such beautiful specimens that you wouldn't want to do that. You wouldn't want to mess them up because they're natural beauty. It's just like um, gold. You, you talk to a gold person. If you pan gold and you get flower gold or you get little plinkers or you get nuggets or you get big nuggets, you know, the little plinkers and the nuggets, they can be used as jewelry gold and they can sell many more times than the price of gold. A beautiful, interesting nugget can be worth five times its weight in gold. Um, if it's crystal, crystallized gold and especially fabulous, it can be worth even more. So it just depends. But you're looking for stuff that just, you kind of look at it and it's got that wow factor, right? Um, beautiful quartz crystals from Herkimer County, New York. If you want to collect something local, then uh, that might be what you want. They've got so many other ones, smoky quartz. Um, does size matter, they ask? Well, it can. It doesn't have to. If all you can afford is little little uh, specimens, you know, they call them thumbnails. I would say, you know, try to concentrate on crystals that are gemstone quality, right? So if... If you only have room for little tiny ones, 
then I would get like little tourmalines, little rubies, little emeralds, you know, that are especially, you know, gemstone crystals that are maybe in the matrix or maybe just a display piece that are in really good condition. And uh, that's what you want. I like big pieces because they just, like, if I'm going to have one, I kind of want to put it in a glass case and be able to enjoy it, you know. I'd rather, not that I have $1,000 to just spend, but I'd rather spend $1,000, $2,000 and buy a really nice piece. And that maybe is the only piece I buy for the next two years, you know, and have that where I could enjoy looking at it. Um, that's just the way I think. Um, at least one or something, one or two, you know. I mean, when you have a lot of stuff like that, of course, people do want to come and steal it. But maybe just get one that weighs like a 1,000 pounds so they can't just lift it off and take it away. Okay, so cabinet size specimens are always worth more um, if that is an option. You know, if it's something that, uh, you know, most of the specimens are the size of your hand, Obviously, if you have one the size of both hands, it's going to be more valuable because of the rarity of finding a larger size one. But the quality is what counts. Now, location's important, but it's not everything. Um, mines that have closed and are all used up uh, of rare, more desirable minerals and, and things like that, those are investments that should be pretty stable. Now, but... Are you going to make a lot of money on it? You know, maybe not. But if you can find a mine that is older and maybe going to run out of stuff, that's that's what you want, you know. I think also finding new mines that open, sometimes there's just a the abundance of minerals coming out of them. You want to grab some of those while you can because, you know, at first they're finding all kinds of them and they yeah, they may open up and find more, but Usually, you know, it's not always the same stuff that's found throughout the different areas of a mine. So look for things that are, if if there's a lot of uh, specimens coming that have aquamarine, well, look for one that has aquamarine and something else going on, right? It's got some other little special little mineral in there, something that really just catches your eye and go, wow, really pops, you know? Like try to try to go that direction, right? The best crystals and mineral specimens to invest in, according to the article here, says here, um, a piece that you bought uh, not long ago could uh, be selling for 20 to 30 times what they were sold for 10 or 20 years ago, especially from particular mines that they give a list here. Um, a lot of them we've already talked about. Uh, Nambia, the the that mine, that one's closed. Investors and international buyers are flooding China's mineral market in recent years, which has played a key for the fast-growing uh, fame and prices. So China's producing a lot of, of good stuff. The conclusion is, decide whether your goal is to be a collector or an investor. Um, again, if you're going to be an investor, you need to look more at the, the dollars and cents are you going to be speculative? Are you going to go with a well-known rare mine and just look for a good deal and a good specimen? You know, like uh, if you want to buy a, a lamp, you're going to buy a Tiffany lamp. Well, which Tiffany lamp are you going to buy? You're going to buy one that, you know, is on the auction block and always seems to sell for more every few years. It's always more, always more. 
Or are you going to just get one of the more common ones that, you know, the price doesn't really seem to go up that much? See, so you got to have that investment investor's mindset to really uh, do it as an investment. Okay. All right. We got a couple more articles before we get into the Jasper. Um, I was going to tell you about a gold mine too. I don't know. It's getting kind of late. I think I'm just going to do the Mose scale and the Jasper. Our friends at Rock and Jim, they send me emails. The emails have links to articles. And one is, what is the Mohs scale? So if you want to find out more about the Mohs scale, you can go to rock, the letter N, gym.com. They're not a sponsor of the show, but, you know, everybody should subscribe to this magazine, I think, because it's really good. The Mohs scale has a level of 10 different stones from uh, the softest talcum to the hardest diamond, okay? So you can actually, in fact, if you go back on my videos, I've got like uh, my first few videos, I do like rock bucket treasure hunting or something like that. And it's either that one or the one before. And I go through and I show you some ways to check rocks by looking at the streak, the color, and the hardness. And we look at the hardness with our fingernail uh, being about a two and a, a copper penny, which is before 1980 in the United States. And that is a, like a three, I believe. And then um, a piece of quartz, which is seven, or like a pocket knife, which is usually about a five and a half to a six, depending on what kind of quality knife blade you have. So when you scratch uh, your stone with one of these objects, when the object scratches the stone, then the stone is softer. When the object rubs off onto the stone, like your fingernail grinds away, then you know it's harder than your fingernail. If you see copper on it, then you know it's harder than copper. If you, you know, I, th- I like a knife because you can see the silver from the knife or you can see a scratch. So you'll know if it's harder or softer. Most of the stuff I look at is uh, uh, the knife comes off on, on, the, uh, on the rock if it's uh, like a quartz or, or chalcedony or jasper or something like that. And the knife scratches it if it's, you know, calcite or, or some other mineral that's softer. Or some, uh... So who created the Mohs scale? It was a German geologist called Carl Friedrich Christian Moles, M-O-H-S. Um, and he invented the scale in 1822. He also invented a system to identify crystal shapes. He believed in sorting minerals by traits like hardness and shape rather than chemical makeup as most mineralogical uh, mineralogists were doing in the day. And it's really a great way to help novice like ourselves to be able to identify things. But it does narrow down where you don't have to whip out the chemicals just to figure out where something is. It is the 200th birthday um, in 1822 to 1922 that Mose uh, devised his scale and uh, put it in a book the testes of mineralogy. The Mohs scale is still used today. Um, uh, again, I use it all the time. Tourmaline is marked Mohs of 7 to 7.5. Garnet is 6.5 to 7.5. Most lapidary clubs will have a scale of hardness that you can refer to to help identify rocks and minerals that you might have picked up in the field. Um, hardness scale hacks 
some geologists have hardness picks, special pencil-like tools crafted around the Mohs scale. Um, that sounds cool. I think I got to get one of those. If you don't have that tool, then of course the fingernail is 2.5, um, penny, copper penny is 3, glass plate and knife are both 5.5, five. steel file is 6.5, masonry drill is 8.5. So there's some good stuff. Collect all those uh, minerals and experiment with the Mohs scale. Our last article for the day, the guide to Jasper Stone. Again, our friends at Rock and Jim have sent this to me. Um, the expert who usually is credited with writing these articles is usually Bob Jones. This one is Bob Jones. So I'm not going to go through every bit of it, but uh, we've gone over these type of things before. There's the stones composition. You know, Jasper is a very colorful, very wide range. You've got bands, obicular, brocaded, which means it looks like it broke apart from an earthquake in a bunch of pieces and then was re-put together. You can see the different colorizations. There's curving and swirling, uh, all kinds of varieties of jasper. It is a micro microcrystalline, which uh, gives it its euphorm color and look. It is uh, can vary from quartz to chalcedony, and so many different uh, variations. Hardness of quartz is typically about what it is. It will take a great polish if it doesn't have lots of pits, and it is fairly... Um, you know, solid, okay? Jasper is found in a variety of environments. Uh, it has been seen in volcanic areas. This is likely where you're going to find it from volcanic ash deposits. Studies of deposits of colorful jaspers indicate once volcanic, ash, once volcanic ash has been deposited by wind or flowing water, it could be reheated later by volcanic activity. Given enough moisture and heat, the ash may become a clay-like mineral that is flexible enough to be influenced by ground movements that cause bending and folding of the layered clay. When well insulated by hot flows, the ash gradually deposits a collide-like structure that is semi-fluid. Such conditions, impurities will have a long time to develop into microcrystallines. As molecules form, they have natural uh, Penchant to attract to each other, and this is how mineral crystals get their start. Once the molecules attach, more molecules join, and there you go. Forming the stone, they go into that, um, how the shapes and the ash can change. Banded jasper, um, it is found all over, bright red, yellow, iron-rich hematite, black magnetite, uh, other iron oxides are deposited and uh, they're talking about a lot of what's happening in the Midwest where the iron deposits were found. Uh, producing amazing slabs, banded jasper rock that have been bent in curved layers with alternating red, yellow, and black metallic-looking hues. These huge slabs are popular as decorative stones and can be sealed and used as tabletops and wall hangings. The name jasper derived from the French word jasphere, which means spotted stone, so guess you know what's over there. Um, varieties of jasper stone, we've talked about this. There's pitcher stone, which can have multicolors, multi-layers that look like uh, scenes of a village or mountains, even trees. There can be shades of brown, red, uh, many different colors. Bruno jasper, Bruno Canyon, B 
beautiful brown hued, multicolored hued jasper forming alternating light brown to dark brown layers of rounded nodules. Very beautiful. Um, there's also bullseyes um, and alternating dome tan and brown. Uh, cabajons can be made from this quite beautiful orbicular jasper varieties. This is very popular, like the ocean jasper or sea jasper or leopard jasper or flower jaspers, different things like that. Poppy jasper is one of the more popular ones. Um, some of it's been found in Morgan Hill, Santa Clara County, California. Um, orbs are bright red in shape uh, to orange. Very beautiful. Um, takes a good polish. Madagascar varieties found initially in 1999. Very colorful orbicular. Uh, or Ocean Jasper is a registered name because lovely Jasper was found in the northwest beaches of the country. Um, the colors vary. Some have greens and browns and yellows and such. Um, not a lot there. It's all claimed off and off-limit to collectors. Mining is done by the, by the locals there. Useful Jaspers. Massive Jasper um, has been used as uh, stones and weapons. The Red jasper and orange jaspers have been used for bow and arrows all through the Midwest, all over the world, anywhere there's jasper. Ancient peoples have found them and used them to form tools, hide scraping tools, hammers, axes, chisels, um, arrows, spears, things of that sort. Black granular jasper, this is very useful type of jasper. Most people don't aren't familiar with it. Black granular jasper called touchstone was used to streak a piece of gold to determine its purity by the yellow color. Today we refer to the stone as a streak plate. Ancients knew gold could be um, adulterated with other metals like copper and silver, so the only guide they had back then was a touchstone to reveal the true color of gold and judge its purity. Okay, um... He talks about some of his collections of banded jasper from uh, Mexico that was collected uh, over uh, some 80 years. And I have some spectacular old Mexican agates um, and jaspers that were collected um, in the 40s and possibly up to the 60s. But they're definitely older than the 60s. And I've shown them on one of my videos as well. Uh, under a video that's entitled about uh, agates, all about agates. So there's some of them in there. All right, guys, that's about it. Um, thank you. Check out our social media. Until next time, remember, rockhounds don't die, they petrify. <laughs>